Hi, I'm Jason Bradford. I'm Rob Dietz. And I'm Asher Miller. Welcome to Crazy Town, where three middle-aged white guys mansplain the apocalypse. The topic of today's episode is overproduction of elites, and please stay tuned for an interview with Chuck Collins. All right, guys, I want to start today's episode with a quiz. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Quiz. I always get these wrong, but I'm going to try much harder this time. Try it. Yeah, Take try it seriously. Don't, don't, don't do some kind of don't you know, just, factor of a thousand. Yeah, just you know, pick off. the highest number that I can come up with. Right. Okay, okay. so here's the question. In 2016, remember those those days? Mm. How many candidates, like major candidates, you think there were in the Republican primaries when when mm-hmm. which Trump won? I think uh, there were 15. Yeah, so this is like the early time. I'm going to go with that, that's a pretty good guess. I'm going to prices right you yeah. like you've done in the past. Yeah. I'm going to go 16. Okay. Okay. You guys are really close. So there were 17 yes. major, oh. major candidates. There were another eight who appeared at least like on at least one state ballot. Yeah. Okay. Now, in 2020, how many Democrats do you think were You go were running? First. You go first. Okay, you're going to price is right me. I'm going to go I'm going to go 20. Okay. Oh, that was the number I was going to pick. Oh, do I go up or down? I'm going to go 19. <laughs> 19, okay. There were 30 major oh, candidates. Oh, no. 30. Oh. And there were another 20 who had their name on the ballot in at least one state. So that's 50 people. That's Listeners crazy. are fortunate they can't see me doing my victory dance. <laughs> Dude, you were off by 10. Okay? Yeah, but still, all I had to do was beat Jason. It is nutty. Okay, so that's, a, that's a lot of candidates. That's okay. a lot of candidates. That's a lot more even than, say, like my high school student council, right? I mean, please tell me there were not 50 <laughs> kids running for student council in your high school. There were not. Okay. Uh, that's what I'm saying. We got we got way too many presidential candidates. And that's uh, that's that's the point I wanted to bring up, which is not actually talking about presidential candidates, but think of that as an example of uh, the hidden driver I want to talk about today, and that is this concept of elite overproduction. Wow, I'm... fancy dancy day. So I've either you heard that that term? <laughs> yeah, before? yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. Well, I'm, I'm... I'm picturing a conveyor belt in a factory, and this like <laughs> thing <laughs> just plops <laughs> out another elite, you know, <laughs> exactly. and, and it's just going faster and faster. Dudes, we are going to get so erudite today because this is fantastic. Like Peter Turchin brought this stuff to the forefront. I remember. Well, so you do know? Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. He's a fascinating guy. He wrote a paper uh, in the academic literature in 2010, basically calling out that the 2020s would be very turbulent and that we risk complete uh, yeah, chaos and fiasco. He said around 2020, we could see political violence yeah. and upheaval around 2020. Well, yeah. he blew that prediction, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, because it, it's interesting, because he made this little prediction. In fact, I talked to him about that. And he's like, oh. I said the word around. <laughs> you know? But because of that, because he said 2020, he got a lot of attention. Right. There was a big article about him in The Atlantic, which I think he bristled at because mm-hmm. it sort of portrayed him in a certain way. Yeah, like um, soothsayer. Exactly. And that's not what he was after. He yeah, this is a concept that he has. I, I don't know if I would say popularized because I bet for a lot of our listeners they've never heard of this concept before. But but it's a key element of, of the stuff that he's been talking about. Okay, so let's let's dial this in a little bit. What do we mean by elite overproduction? What I, I'd even like to maybe start with. What is elite? Like, does elite mean you've got a lot of money? That you've got uh, college degrees? That you're somehow immune to uh, the problems of everyday life. What 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 is an elite? You you you're a hereditary badass, you know. <laughs> or or you mean like uh, like I can run fast and no, jump no, high, no, or no, that no. I got a lot of money no, in my royalty, trust fund? Royalty. Oh, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. yeah, actually, I think my son's my son's soccer team. They've got like two levels, and one of them is elite. Uh huh. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right, right. Which makes yeah. the other group feel bad. Yeah, you yeah. Know? You you guys are the subpar team. Over exactly. Here. The the non elite. <laughs> yeah. You guys are the non elite. The um, mediocre on this team. The elite over here. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so elite, I think, there's not like a a set definition. I I think sometimes people think of elite as, you know, a very rarefied group of people. But this is more, I would say, a class of people. Maybe in colloquial terms, you could think of it as like the the one percenters. Do you know what I mean? And maybe even the top 10%. Yeah. People that uh, have high degrees, 
Jason, a lot of high income. Now that I think about it, Jason, you're fucking elite, man. You got your PhD, <laughs> Doctor yes. Bradford. Over yeah, there, I, right? I, I'm gonna. I think I am the most elite in this room right now, and I'm proud of it. Um, I've got, a, I've got, a, I've got a piled higher and deeper degree from a prestigious university in the Midwest uh, called Washington University in St. Louis, which bills itself as the Ivy League school of the Midwest. Oh, well, so I uh, think that's fancy. Let's let's just stop you right there, what? Captain Elite, because I went to one of those uh, elite Ivy Leagues, uh, a real one. Oh, Ooh, oh. Yeah. yeah, maybe Which I'm one? more elite than you are. What was it? That? What was that one called? Well, it was called the University of Pennsylvania. So a state which school makes it sound like a state school. Golden Indy Lions. <laughs> yeah. it was, that's the funniest thing. All the students at that school are are really insecure about it. Like <laughs> it, it doesn't have the same name Cash- recognition as Cachet. Princeton or Harvard. Therefore. <laughs> I'm I'm not as worthy. They're sub elite. Yeah, yeah. So I I I get you guys both beat Why? because Why? I am so elite uh-huh. that I didn't need to go to one of these top you know top flight schools. I actually went to a top twenty five liberal arts school, patting myself on the back. Okay. Thank you very much. Liberal arts school. What is that? But I got I'm so elite that I got the most impractical degree you could possibly get. I mean, it even trumps you know getting a degree in philosophy. I okay. got I got a degree in creative writing. Wow. Right. I mean, you have to have cojones to think you could you could skid through life exactly with a freaking creative writing degree. I, I mean, that is we should, that's amazing. We got to go get his novels and his books of poetry and see how creative they are. <laughs> They're so elite that you can't get them. <laughs> um, okay, so we've defined elites as the three of us morons. Is that, <laughs> that I think just lowered the bar for everyone else listening. That like, yeah, that's elite. Yeah, we can get we can get there. <laughs> So, so the idea of elite over production, I think a lot of people tend to think of that as competition between elite people because maybe there's a limited number of positions of power because if there's over, quote-unquote, overproduction of elites, so many people going to getting advanced degrees or whatever, there's more of a competition between them for these limited positions of power. Mm-hmm. And that's part of it for sure. But there's more to this, I, I think, the, the concept of elite overproduction, which is really why I wanted to talk about it as a hidden driver of what's brought us into crazy town. And, and another part of the dynamic is kind of how elite overproduction feeds into, helps create, and interacts with inequality in society as a whole. Mm-hmm. So would it be helpful if I sort of put this into context, you know, this whole elite overproduction? Hey, I, I'm, I'm like the Denzel Washington of this podcast. Yeah. Not, not in looks, not in <laughs> I was just going to say, you're not uh, a, you're, you're I, I'm a like his buddy. character in the movie Philadelphia, where he, he's constantly saying, explain it to me like I'm a two-year-old. I that's, thought it was five-year-old. That's what I, well, I, I need to go back another okay. three years. A two-year-old? I want, I want simple explanations. So yes, please, that's your invitation. Two-year-old, Daddy no like <laughs> yeah. people who have noses up in the air. Right, right. That's how you want <laughs> me to talk go. about it? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll probably understand it then. Uh, this is not going to work. I'm actually going to sound like a real elite here. Uh, so Turchin's work, the, the concept of elite overproduction, is part of sort of, I, I guess, a new field called cleodynamics. <laughs> Maybe some mm. people call it cleodynamics. I call it cleodynamics. I, I call that overproduction of elite words. <laughs> right. Can, can we come up with something a little simpler? It's it's an interesting approach to basically looking at looking at historical materials, actually kind of a big data approach of collecting lots of information from societies in in recent history all the way back to ancient history and producing mathematical models mm-hmm. based upon all that data. So like kind of crunching it and using math in a sense to look at models of like cycles of stability and instability and, and looking for patterns. Mm-hmm. So Turchin and colleagues of his have been looking at, I think they studied like eight different societies and there's a whole approach being taken right now to try to collect information on others as well looking at some of these dynamics and and they've seen cer- certain patterns and i want to point out like these two main cycles in that one is a cycle that actually comes from a guy named jack goldstone um who i think had a lot of influence on turchin uh and and that is this idea of these structural demographic cycles which last around 50 years and that has a lot to do with like you know the the population how many people are in the population, the working population, labor dynamics, that kind of thing. And then this larger cycle, which I think Turchin titled secular cycles, 
which lasts like two to 300 years. Okay. So there's like in these 50-year windows, there are these dynamics that happen, these changes that happen that can lead to instability because of demographic shifts. Mm-hmm. And then over in larger cycles, you have integrative and disintegrative phases. So these phases where you have kind of a growth in a society or a civilization, things integrate, there's like prosperity that happens, and then a disintegrative phase, and that could even lead to the collapse of that, so that it's society. It's a lot of big words again, but I, if I am interpreting you correctly, rather than a society just running along in some straight line, right. we're going through cycles where sometimes things are getting better, sometimes things are getting worse. There's ups and downs, and... and um there was an interesting paper that came out a few years ago by a guy named Luke Kemp, and he's part of a very elite institution <laughs> called the University of Cambridge, mm. and looking at existential risks and all that. And they actually found out what the, the they, they, they found every civilization they could that they could figure out when do we think we, it arose and when do we think it ended? And they uh-huh. bracketed that. And they said the average lifespan of civilizations is 336 years, if you, if you take all of them. So... Pretty. So we're fine here in the U.S. We're good. We got a little while to go. <laughs> yeah, this golden here, no, no problems. No problems. On the no problems at all. Yeah. Well, that seems to parallel the uh, the secular cycles of Turchin a bit. Right. Yeah. 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 Although maybe a little bit longer. It's good. It's good. Yeah. We're, yeah, we're, yeah. we're safe, like Asher says. <laughs> well, okay. So how does elite overproduction fit into these cycles? Like, what? What? Is, how is it part of this story? So if you think about the these things as phases, right? These these cycles as phases. You have this like I talked about a little bit earlier, you have this growth and stability phase, right? Where there's like general prosperity and opportunity across the society. There could be surplus. We've talked a lot about about that. Surplus of materials, maybe there's relative stability in terms of like wars and and conflict, you know, so there's there's like a population growth that happens. It's like the the times are good, so people aren't they're not worried about going off to war right. or whatever. They're just doing their jobs, and they're maybe having a little breathing room, so you can have a bigger family. Now, and if it, actually, if you think of these as cycles and, and recognize that that these have come from something else, which is usually a disintegrative phase where there might have actually been population decline, right? So. So in the beginning, as a population is growing, there's almost uh, a shortage of people for labor. And so there's higher wages and more prosperity for more people in that kind of initial phase. But then as population grows, because of that stability, that then creates a downward pressure on wages, right? There's more people mm. for these these jobs. And, and then the elite, and then kind of almost all societies, you know, at least Western societies, you do have an elite, right? We talked about that when we talked about complexity before, right? So they're the ones who end up benefiting from the... The drop in in wages, you know, the the right. surplus of labor, right? kind of like a Marxist critique of you know, yeah. And they, because of all the stability and the gains that they've had, there are more people kind of in this elite class, and they want to hold on to their their gains. So you've got what's called popular miseration for the majority of the people. Life is not as good as it had been. It's, it's another overproduction yeah. of elite words. Popular immiseration. Can we just say that people are sad? Yeah. <laughs> people are suffering, yeah. right? Yeah. But the elites aren't suffering, right? right. They're actually benefiting, they're, in a sense, from that suffering. They're actually suffering. laughing at it. They're in their tower <laughs> going, whoa, look at these suffering balloons. Give, give them cake, right? right? It sounds like the Hunger Games kind of situation. Yeah, sure. <laughs> That's exactly. This is where Turchin got his theories, actually. Okay. From the okay. Hunger Games. Put down oh. the bow, Jason. Put it down. <laughs> but because the elite are not feeling that immiseration, and they've been benefiting from it, they're not taking any action to address it. And that growing inequality eventually leads to unrest and and political violence, and that could sort of actually even eventually lead to the breakdown of of the society at large. What's amazing is you talk about there's four phases in this model, right? The growth phase and the stability phase, and then the miseration phase, (laughs) and then the kind of the collapse or unrest phase. It parallels the adaptive cycle, which we talked about right, in previous yeah. episodes. So, so it, again, what's fascinating is, is well, and Turchin is an ecologist that became this historian. So um, I definitely think that there's definitely overlap then between maybe ecological ideas of, of, of systems cycles, and cycles systems yeah. and between the two. You yeah. know. Okay, I, I know you two elite guys can go off talking about models and yes. cycles. And when I talk about cycles, I like to talk about bicycles, yes. you know, and ride <laughs> it over to uh, to my favorite spot. So 
I've got to do this again, the two-year-old case. Can we just get like a real-world example of, of a, you know, real people in a real place going through this? Can, and, we, help, can we help Rob out here? Well, sure? I want to make a suggestion. Okay. Okay, I want you to take us back to ancient Rome. And the Ooh, reason I want to do that classic. is because of the four years of Latin that I studied in high school <laughs> as an elitist, as a budding That's young totally elitist. elitist. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, semper ubi And it was very semper. practical, yes, right? Let's, let's do this part of the podcast in Latin, okay? Here we okay. go. Go yeah. ahead, Asher. You start. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got one Latin phrase, semper ubi sub ubi. Always wear underwear. There you go. No. You got, he, he knows Latin all right. <laughs> Holy shit, guys! <laughs> That's really disturbing. Um, okay, yeah let's let's talk about the let's talk about the Roman Republic. Okay. Okay. So, if if I'm gonna channel my my history knowledge uh, here, you know, Roman Republic, it was ruled by a Senate. The people that were in the Senate were obviously part of an, it. Was an elite class of people, right? Yeah. Mitchus McConnellus was the <laughs> exactly. Senate leader. Exactly. I, I'm sorry, but I have I've got. You know, the life of Brian in my head right now, which is really <laughs> yeah, right, right. dangerous. Yeah. Some people will get that reference. I'm not going to say it. Yeah. Um, uh, but th- there's an elite class. It's not everybody, or it's not true democracy. But there's a Senate. There are limited seats in that Senate, okay? And there's, like, these positions, even power positions within that, there's these consuls, which you can almost think of maybe the equivalent of, or like, a prime minister type of thing. Mm-hmm. And Rome went through, the Roman Republic went through this growth phase where... It was actually the growth of the Republic in terms of its territorial expansion. You know, there's a lot of, mm-hmm. of wars and conquering, and the, they had a great military. And through the process of doing that, they actually they enslaved many, many people and brought them into the, the Roman economy. And so when that happened, that actually depressed wages for right. the non-elites, right, right? right? So they now had slave labor working their their massive estates, you know, the elite did. And that that created this this growing inequality within within the society. You actually had some people interestingly who were part of the the elite class who were arguing they're called populares, you know, which I think may be the origin of the concept of a populist. Mm. Like the Gracchi brothers who argued that what they needed to do was land redistribution and, and actually meeting the needs of uh, a lot of it were returning soldiers. Yeah. They were also film producers like the Cohen brothers. Right, right? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Their technology was not quite as advanced. But, um, and, and so they were arguing, they were championing the cause of the, the quote unquote lower classes. Of course, they had to be killed. You know, yeah, they're, right. they're yeah. both Gracchi brothers and ended up being assassinated. Well, they, name like, a uh, a Roman leader of some sort who wasn't violently murdered. You know? Well, so and that's what ended up happening was that this kind of elite overproduction dynamic ended up creating so much instability within the Republic that the Republic failed, right? That's when we get Julius Caesar, you know, became the first emperor. And then we had hundreds of years then of rule by emperors. I wonder if people around in the elite class recognize the overproduction. Like that's why his friends stabbed him to death. Yeah, but that was only one guy. Interesting. Well, of course, when you're talking like that, I just keep thinking about, you want another example, we'll bring it home to the United States. I mean, gosh, a lot of what we saw was rising population in the U.S. and stagnating wages now, especially since, you know, the 1970s and a rollback of social welfare programs. Progressive taxation has plummeted. And now, you know, the the wealthy are keeping more of their gains than ever before. It's like around the time the three of us were born. I wonder if... It's not if, a coincidence. If we're part of this story somehow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all this... We're the last three. We just tipped it. That's the way yeah. an elitist thinks. This must be about me. Right? Yeah. But it, it's almost like, you know, the organized labor sort of collapsed, right? And, yeah. and its influence declined. You have the rise of neoliberalism and globalization where we depress wages by outsourcing to other countries. And just a whole lot of, just, you know, these ideas of... The wealthy, if they keep it, they'll invest. It will trickle down. So this idiotic trickle-downism. And remember that movie, uh, uh, Greed is Good, Wall Street? Wall Street, yeah. You know? My, yeah, that was Michael Douglas's uh, sort of star-turning, you know, yeah. make that speech. Yes. Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. And you Greed think about, works. Think about Goldstone's theory of, of demographic shifts being 50-year cycles. You know, we mm-hmm. had a period following the, the Great Depression. Yeah. 
through the end of the 70s, like a 50-year cycle there. Right. And in a sense, this was a reaction to that, you know, of a pullback of social welfare and progressive taxation, all the stuff that Reagan brought us. Yeah. Well, all of that is going on. You talked earlier, Asher, about the elites actually tend to kind of do the wrong things as these cycles are, are getting into this downturn phase. And you, you shared an article that was written by Jack Goldstone and Peter Turchin in this magazine, I, Noema, 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 I have no idea how to Noema, pronounce it, I think. N-O-E-M-A, too many elite words again, but uh, <laughs> I thought it was really fascinating. The article talks about the three mistakes that the elites make as, I guess, as they're being overproduced, which is, <laughs> one of them is that they... They keep the gains to themselves by this oversupply of labor. So like in Rome, the slaves came in and they had a lot of labor. Wages were depressed. So that means if I own the the means to production, my profits go up and I tend to keep it rather than sharing it with, with the wage earners. So that's mistake number one. The second mistake they pointed out is that they make it very difficult for people in that lower the lower echelons of society to to kind of climb their way up the ladder or, or even see the merit. You know, if they have achievements, they don't reap the benefits. Of and, it. and I yeah. think we should point out that, that there's a, a wrinkle, you know, unique way of this also playing out here in the United States, which is racial as well, yeah. right? It's not just a, an economic class situation. It's also a racial um, yeah. dynamic. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, obviously, like Rome, you think about it, it's bringing in slaves, you know, now you've, you've set up society for, you know, deliberately holding down a certain set of people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that happened here as well. Uh, the third one is the douchiest mistake that they make, which is they, they keep their own taxes low. You know, they keep influencing government not to, to tax them. They basically feel like, hey, I earned this. I'm not part of any social contract. Right. And, and they just keep it all to themselves. So they, with those three mistakes... That's how that dynamic of inequality that you talked about earlier rises up and, and yeah. takes hold of a society. And there are real, you know, bringing it back to where we are now, there are real consequences, you know, to all of this. I mean, you know, obviously this growing inequality in the United States and in other countries, which is, which is really accelerating. In fact, it has accelerated through the coronavirus pandemic. And so there's, there really is increasing popular immiseration if we're going to use that, that yeah yeah that oh, you term. see it uh, you see it on the streets right out right outside now. your doors oh, i mean gosh. people i don't know how it is in other nations but uh, the u.s it's very visible how many more homeless people there are yeah. people with without a place to stay the night you you talked about the douchiest thing being sort of like taking away taxation that's really upsetting for me is this the idea that elites even progressive elites or, or liberal elites tend to fall into these silos of their own experience. You yeah, know what I mean? And so, easy. like, there's a lot that's happening as there is this increasing inequality and suffering amongst, the, you know, general population. The elites are, in a sense, fighting over things that don't actually, in many cases, materially help those people. They're fighting over cultural differences. And it's not just the right, you know, who are trying to push these cultural divisions in order to maintain their power. I think the the people on the left are doing that as well in the sense that like they're, they're focusing so much on identity politics yeah. and other kinds of things because they're just not even aware of the suffering of so many other people because they live in their in their bubble. Well, yeah. of course, that's why you see such a rise in distrust and anger in well, I'll just take the United States because that's where I'm, I'm, I'm seeing things. But the, the fact that the elites are paying attention to the wrong stuff and that the basically the, the, the largest classes in society are suffering, well, of course they lose trust in government. And of course they start getting more and more deeply embedded in, in their own cultural views, some of which are, are not very uh, friendly towards your neighbors, uh, a lot of scapegoating going on, and you, you end up with the polarization that we see today. Yeah, and, and some of that is driven. So I think general distrust, I think if you look at, at polling and stuff like that, you see that there's, 
has been a decline in trust in institutions and a, and a decline in, in social trust across society over decades in the United States. And that's because I think people are legitimately feeling like, at least in the case of the government, that they're not being represented, their concerns are not being represented. But it's also being intentionally stoked, right? Mm-hmm. So I talked about the Gracchi brothers earlier. I don't know if their kind of populism was genuine or if that was part of their attempt to gain power, yeah. you know. But but we we definitely see, like with Trump, for example, you know, a lot of populist rhetoric, but it's like regressive populism, right. you know. It's, it's basically saying... I see that you're suffering, but it's these people's fault. Right. It's yeah. liberals' faults. It's the it's China. Yeah, Mexicans. It's, it's Mexican immigrants, or you know yeah. whatever it is. It's, it's you guys, you college elitist yes. scumbags, scientists. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah. It's these. It's the liberal elite. You yeah. know that are, that are doing this, and and so that just stokes it and and creates a this dynamic that I think that Turchin was warning us about. Yeah. That that's a. A scary thought, right, is that you have leaders who come in who maybe know what's going on and recognize there's inequality, but rather than give up some of what the, has filled up their coffers, they would rather just turn people onto a course of scapegoating Ugh. others in society. That's uh, and I think that maybe that's the kind of the, the entering of that, I'll call it the people are sad phase. What is the immiseration phase? Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> that's what's crazy making about this all is that, I mean, this is so obvious. And there's there's dozens of historic examples of what the wrong thing to do is and what the right thing to do is. And, the, and, to, and to watch these clueless elites do the wrong thing is just, it's just, it just uh, that's uh, a, uh, it drives me nuts. That's a new movie that Spike Lee is producing <laughs> yeah. called "Do the Wrong Thing." Yeah, yeah, it's awful. It's just awful to watch. That's that's kind of the, the crazy town side of it, right? Yeah. You know, no, it's 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 pretty horrendous. Well, you you brought up these historical examples. There's lots of examples of of societies not getting it right. Uh-huh. You know, there are some examples. I think Turchin and and others have pointed to as examples of of sort of corrections, you know what I mean? And again, distinguishing between these kind of like these 50-year cycles and the the big, big cycle right, of, right. of a society actually like kind of collapsing, you know? Yeah. And, and the, a, a couple of examples I think that are, that are talked about are, you know, Britain in the 1820s and the United States in the 1930s. I think uh, our, for our listeners, people are pretty familiar, I think, with, with the Great Depression and policies that, that FDR had put in place, a New Deal and other things that were really around trying to address. Yeah, massive you know, redistribution of wealth. Redistribution happened. of wealth, pr- providing a social a net, yeah, you know, safety net, social security, all kinds of things that were put in Getting place. people to, back to, to work, people. yeah. In the 1820s, you know, in Britain... That was a situation, and it's, it is interesting. It'd be in a whole other conversation to talk about the role that energy and industrialization have, yeah. has played in all this stuff. But especially in terms of a lot of the the disruption, you know, that people had right loss of jobs because you've got right. industrialization happening. And, and we had that, you know, we, we had that in in the United States, but they had that in, in Britain in the eighteen twenties. Yeah. You know, from the early early parts of industrialization, and they were they were in a situation where things could have gone really rough. And and by the way, you know, less less than thirty years later, in eighteen forty eight, there were revolutions all over Europe. It right. didn't happen in Britain, right? And it was partly, at least the theory goes, is that they, they had done some correction in the 1820s. Mm-hmm. So there, there are some examples of, of right. societies being right. like, you know. Well, that's really well and good from a historical perspective. But what if we, what if we take this uh, to today? And I, I'm thinking of an analogy. Let's say the elites are like the pilot of a jetliner, Okay. And they're they're trying to run the jetliners like society or the economy or you know the the kind of broad uh, thing that they're guiding. So uh, they enter a, a one of these cycles where there's a lot of turbulence, right? And the, so the pilot, if they do the right thing, maybe they can correct for that turbulence. And and that's what happened in 1820s in Britain or the 1930s. FDR was a pretty good pilot, but let's bring this forward to today and let's say that turbulence is far, far worse because of the overshoot situation that we're now in. Like, I feel like we're, uh, the pilot may struggle to find any sort of course correction to, to actually 
keep that plane from breaking up. I mean, what, what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, um, that's absolutely right. It's, uh, what can you do in a situation when you're in this overshoot, you know? Yeah, like let's say there's not the surplus that you had in the 1930s, yeah. right? Yeah, I think you've got you've to redistribute wealth. You've got to stabilize. I think progressives often make the mistake, though, of thinking that if you, if you redistribute wealth, then, then you can go back to the age of growth. And, you know, and, and, and I just don't think we're, there we're past that now. And I think that's probably the, what leads to the difference between these sort of 50-year cycles on one hand of sort of stabilizing versus when things actually kind of end up falling apart because the biophysical world is no longer able to support the civilization at the size it is. Right. Right. It's an interesting question that I haven't seen really discussed much, which is, I guess, what happens when these when secular cycles meet adaptive cycles, right. you know, and how do we think about this in the context of elite overproduction and the, these dynamics of inequality in the context of overshoot and an inevitable ratcheting down, right. you know? So and maybe another way to say it is, what happens when even with redistribution, with yeah. the right policies, with a correction for sort of this elite overproduction, we have increased popular immiseration because there are fewer resources. There's going to be dramatic impacts from climate changes. Right. You know, like we have to, we're going to be paying the bills for a lot of stuff that's happened over the last couple of centuries. I, I feel like this is what gives me all this anxiety. Like I can see what we need to be doing. You know, we need to be reforesting like crazy, converting our agriculture to more regenerative practices, weaning our whole society off the fossil fuel dependency, getting local economies together, making sure there's a social safety net so people can be flexible and, and, and train up for the new things we need to do. And I'm worried. Yeah, you, uh, that- <laughs> I don't think you have this right. Okay. So uh, as an elite, yeah. I think the solution is uh, I'm, I'm going to have to murder at least one of you, possibly two, and then hold whatever wealth I, I get from that Okay. Yeah, myself. what you're describing, Jason, sounds really hard. It's just a lot easier yeah. to go in the bunker, right? Okay. All right, let's hit that bunker. Stay tuned for our George Costanza Memorial Do the Opposite segment, where we discuss things we can do to get the hell out of crazy town. You don't have to just listen to the three of us blather on anymore. We've actually invited someone intelligent on the program to provide inspiration. Hey guys, I'd like to share a review that we received on iTunes. You want to hear it? Do it. All right. This is from Jeff1534. Hopefully that's not a robot. Or the year he was born. (laughs) Okay. So Jeff1534 says, These are the environmental conversations we need to be having. A pure dose of reality. Okay. And he goes on? No, that's it. Ooh, pithy. Like it. (laughs) Jason, you are a pure dose of reality. (laughs) Or a pure (laughs) dose of something anyway. (laughs) It's not saying that reality is a good reality. It's just reality. Yeah. Uh, no, seriously, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to review. We really appreciate that. And it feels good to hear from some listeners. And if Jeff inspires you, please go over to iTunes and rate us and review us. And maybe we will read yours next time. Every decision I've ever made in my entire life has been wrong. My life is the complete opposite of everything I want it to be. If every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. (laughs) Okay, if we're going to be like our buddy George Costanza, then we got to figure out how to do the opposite when it comes to overproduction of elites. So So that that means... Taking some elites out? Is that what you're, I, you're You know, uh, this is not an 80s action movie, share. You can't just uh, grab a bunch of weapons out well, of we Jason's tool We need a disclaimer. Shit. Melody's going to come in and be like, uh, the producers of this podcast do not <laughs> advocate <laughs> violence. Advocate violence. Yeah. No, I am not talking about going out and harming our, our elite brethren out there. No, it's but it's about breaking out of the elite silos and trying to realize when 
your cultural worldview is is kind of towards this elitism. So what I mean by that, I, I feel like in coming up, even as a, as young as a high schooler, there was always this idea of the trades and the the uh, agricultural. Like, no, you don't stay away from that stuff. You want to you want to rise up and go to some elite college and have some elite desk job. Yeah, and, you can get you can get fat and unhealthy. Right. But even if you wanted to become a lawyer, it doesn't mean then that you have to look at it as this class thing, like that's elite and being a plumber is somehow not. I think like, I think it comes back to some of the things we talked about before, which is these silos. I mean, whatever society decides it wants to classify as elite, imagine being a farmer suddenly becomes elite. You know, reward people that way. It's about understanding the reality of of people whose experiences are different, especially ones that are economically not as advantaged, right? And that means it's really easy to fall into those silos because you spend your time with people that are in the same economic class or whatever reality that you're in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And the less interaction you have among people who are doing different jobs or or having different ways of of making a living, yeah, it just it, see my my problem is that. I don't want to have any interaction with anybody, right? <laughs> elite, non elite, including to, the two of yeah. you guys. Yeah, how do we unelitify ourselves? I guess is the question. Oh, that's a great verb, Jason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I um the other thing, and again, this is maybe being a little bit repetitive in terms of things that we've we've spoken about before, but I think it's really important, which is collectively agitating for progressive economic policies and and tempering of elite power and, and leadership without advocating for particular politicians or for particular policies necessarily. There are organizations that have been working, our, our colleague and friend Chuck Collins at Institute for Policy Studies, who who runs a website called inequality.org. Mm. Right. Uh, Which is is highly in favor of more in, in, yes, inequality, right? Yeah, that's what they're, <laughs> that's, that's what they're all about. Um, Chuck is hitting his head right, right. now. Uh, Damn it, Rob. Don't you know what I do? <laughs> I tried to explain this to you like you were a two-year-old. <laughs> it didn't work. Um, there are progressive tax policies. There are things that are really around political reforms. You know, to talk about elites, I think it's a uh, a complaint that people from all kinds of political persuasions have that our representatives don't understand the reality of most people out there. So maybe it's yeah. about electing people who actually have lived experience. Right. Yeah, you know, which that, could help, you know, with campaign finance reform could help that and opening right. up politics to more regular folks. That would be great. And I, But I do think you're right. There's actually a cultural problem we have. And I think there's also a cultural shift going on where a lot of people are really interested in more of these trade jobs and having a livelihood that is more tactile and you, tied to real things. You see, uh, You see both... Going on, like I think you're right, Jason, and I, I think I've heard a lot of younger people thinking about that, thinking about farming or thinking about uh, getting into the renewable energy sector, stuff like that. But then you also have all these news stories of elites, uh, whether they're actors or or venture capitalists, who are buying their children's way into these elite universities yeah. you know, and, and all that scandal. Well, so if we're going to say do the opposite, then don't send your kids to Ivy League schools. Never. That's right. Ever. Stay away from them, especially not those uh, Ivies of the Midwest or the Ivies of the South. You still being an elitist. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help myself. <laughs> Chuck Collins is the director of the Program on Inequality and the Common Good at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he co-edits the website inequality.org. He is the author of a number of books on inequality, including Born on Third Base, A One Percenter Makes the Case for Tackling Inequality, Bringing Wealth Home, and Committing to the Common Good. Chuck's latest book, which just came out in April, is called The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Spend Millions to Hide Trillions. He also happens to do a mean impression of Bernie Sanders. Maybe sometime we can get him to do it. And he uh, recently moved full-time to a small farm in Vermont. I'm guessing that's after he read Jason's Futures Rural paper, I'm sure. Absolutely. And he sits on the board of post Carbon Institute. So consider Chuck a friend and an advisor and uh, I guess sort of my boss. Don't, don't let that get to your head, Chuck. So avid listeners of the podcast will recognize Chuck as he joined us 
in person, no less. That was pre-pandemic, back in episode 10 of the podcast for an episode called Tackling Inequality in the Economy, One Pair of Later Hosen at a Time. You'll get the reference if you listen to it. On that podcast, he shared some of his personal history, which I think pertains to this conversation right now. And he talked to us about addressing inequality on a finite planet. So Chuck, thanks for coming back and visiting us in Crazy Town. Great to be back in Crazy Town. So on this season of the podcast, we are talking about hidden drivers that are moving us to the precipice of environmental and social breakdown, or you know, hidden drivers that are keeping us from acting collectively in ways that actually help. In this episode, Rob, Jason, and I talked about elite overproduction, and that theory is essentially that competition and power-seeking among the elite in societies tends to lead to growing inequality and eventually to sociopolitical upheavals in, in many societies that they've tracked, it can lead to actually a collapse of society. And we talked about how this dynamic may actually be playing out or will be playing out in the context of ecological overshoot. So Chuck, I want to have you on because you've worked for decades to tackle the inequality crisis and the growing influence of the very, very wealthy. Uh, you're also someone who grew up in and then walked away from living kind of in an elite bubble. So I want to get your thoughts about what we can do collectively to combat the influence and the overproduction of elites. I think it might be useful actually to share sort of a framework of, that Peter Turchin put out. He's the originator of the theory of elite overproduction. He talked about in a paper that he wrote or a piece that he wrote, which we link to in the show notes, about the three cardinal sins that elites commit. So I thought maybe we could tackle those one by one. How does that sound? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, so let's start with the first one. And again, I'm going to quote Peter here. First, faced with a surge of labor that dampens growth in wages and productivity, elites seek to take a larger portion of economic gains for themselves, driving up inequality. He must be making this up, right? Because we haven't seen that at all. <laughs> well, yeah, that's kind of what we've been living through for a couple decades, clearly. You know, on the one level, we see like the gap between CEO pay and worker pay keeps growing. It was, it was maybe 42 to one in 1980. Now it's like 320 to one. The productivity gains, you know, the economists look at the return to labor, you know, how much goes back to workers, how much goes to capital. Uh, a lot of the gains are flowing to capital where wages have been sort of stagnant or fallen. So another way of saying, Workers haven't shared in the productivity gains of the last 40 years, which have been huge, right? Just mm -hmm. think of the internet and the productivity. Yeah, technology, and, automation, all that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of it is, I think that Peter's theory is right, which is you see the rules governing the economy, you know, tax policy, trade policy, whether wages are lifted up or down, are kind of tipped in favor of, of the haves, of asset owners at the expense of people who work for wages. And then I would say even in the last 15 years, there's now a cycle of, you know, it used to be sort of income inequality. Now it's like wealth inequality where wealth and power use their influence to rig the rules to get more wealth and power. So it becomes kind of like a compounding cycle. And that's where I think that first cardinal sin is accurate. Right. And it's not just changing the rules, it's just almost the the physics of if you have capital and you invest in things, we've seen this, I guess it is the rules a little bit in the sense that we've changed, like the Fed has changed policies in terms of interest rates and things that tends to drive capital towards investing in assets, right? Like the stock market. And so the people who are able to invest in the market are just making huge gains, yeah, and th and then you see this this expansion of you you know economists call it rent seeking the whole idea that you're you're going to keep extracting fees and value from the real economy so capital wealth and and we we ordinary people we experience it as getting nickel and dimed every time you turn around oh you know oh my credit card fee is higher my right. cell phone bill there's another f little fee there oh you know my bank fees are you know like we're just like everywhere being squeezed harder. You use the internet in this way, you pay a fee, you know, and that all that money is like rent going to owners of big corporations and really the owners of capital. Mm -hmm. And this is just accelerated, right? With the pandemic. This, do you feel like there's an, just an acceleration generally happening right now? Yeah. I mean, I would say the, 
the, the, the new physics of inequality is accelerating advantage for the top and kind of compounding disadvantage for say the bottom 60%. You know, I think we went into the pandemic where 40% of the bottom population was literally, you know, the precariat, you know, no financial reserves to speak of very diminished access to healthcare and sort of social supports and have come through the pandemic probably more precarious. Mm-hmm. And I think we're about to see a whole new wave of evictions and foreclosures and consolidation. Mm-hmm. You know, you see these big private equity companies buying up rental housing, yeah. knowing people need to live somewhere. And so we're going to own these, we're going to buy up at foreclosure everywhere, these rental housing and rent it back to people mm-hmm. and make a lot of money. Um, okay, so let's go on to the second one. So why don't we just actually lay out this sort of, just see if if you concur with with these three cardinal sins, and then maybe we could talk about, well, what do we actually do about them? So the second one, and again, I'm going to quote here, and I actually found this one kind of interesting, and I'd be, because it wouldn't be the first thing that comes to my mind, but I'd be curious to hear your take on it, especially considering your your life story. So quoting, second, facing greater competition for elite wealth and status they tighten up the path to mobility to favor themselves and their progeny. For example, in an increasingly meritocratic society, elites could keep places at top universities limited and raise the entry requirements and costs in ways that favor the children of those who have already succeeded. Yeah, you know, actually, I see a lot of signs of this. Hmm. And and in some ways, it's less even the top 1% or the top one-tenth of percent, which I think are one of the, they're really the drivers of extreme inequality. But in this case, the top 10%, sort of mm. the mm-hmm. elites or upper upper middle class. And actually, there is this Brookings economist, Richard Reeves, who wrote a really interesting book called Dream Hoarding, which mm. is about what he calls opportunity hoarding among these elites. And there's a number of signs. One is the growth of kind of professional associations that kind of make their members a protected class. They're kind of like, they, you know, you think of the American Medical Association, but you can pretty much think of it, you know, lawyers, real estate appraisers, all these groups that sort of create scarcity, drive up costs that become kind of a privileged protected class in a meritocratic society. We got our training. So mm-hmm. you know, now we, you pay us. Hmm. But there's all these other examples that Reeves gives of, of kind of opportunity hoarding where crowding on spots in higher education, elite higher education being a really important ticket to economic advancement mm-hmm. or snob zoning in affluent residential areas where, okay, you know, we got our house. Now our job is to keep other people from buying houses in our community, keeping our home values up and keeping right. other people out. And then, you know, just what sociologists call the the intergenerational transmission of advantage. You know, how do you help your kids get a leg up in a competitive society, whether that's SAT, you know, test score tutors or unpaid internships or the 101 ways that families just help their kids. Paying people to take tests for your kids, right? So they <laughs> yeah, at the extreme level. <laughs> or, or pretending that they play sports and getting a, a scholarship. To, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, and, and all this, this kind of um, hoarding is happening at the same time that we're reducing public investments in access to student loans or making, making it harder for people to get their first-time homebuyer loan. Things that previous generations benefited from public investments that helped them kind of get a rung on the ladder of opportunity. And now they're sort of pulling the ladder out from under people. So mm-hmm. lots of examples, I think, fall in that opportunity hoarding, protecting things for your progeny, tough luck for the other kids. Right. You know. Okay, now the final one. And again, I'm quoting, third, anxious to hold on to their rising fortunes, they do all they can to resist taxation of their wealth and profits, even if that means starving the government of needed revenues leading to decaying infrastructure, declining public services, and fast-rising government debts. Well, I, I don't think we need to talk too much about the, the evidence of that. It's interesting. I'd, I'd be curious your take on it right now because this is an issue that seems to be heating up with proposals by the Biden administration to pay for some of their their big plans right now. That includes increasing taxes on the wealthy and corporations. 
Yeah, I, I agree. This is the most sort of obvious one that the very wealthy, uh, the top one-tenth of 1% has done a really good job driving down their taxes, kind of almost making taxation voluntary for the super rich. Mm-hmm. You know, only the little people should pay taxes. Even had a Trump Trump administration person talking about the estate tax saying, only morons pay the estate tax. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's what one legal theorist calls high wealth exceptionalism. We should have one set of rules for us and one for everyone else. Mm-hmm. But I think the good news is people are kind of coming around to the fact that, okay, we need to restore progressivity in the tax code. Wealthy people should pay their fair share. And actually, there's a new push to even like enforce the rules, retool the IRS so they can monitor the shell games of the super rich and enforce the existing tax laws. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's an estimated trillion dollar a year tax gap now, which is the gap between what the system should collect and what it actually is collecting. And most of that's very high wealth tax avoidance. Um, And in the book I wrote, The Wealth Hoarders, there is this wealth defense industry. Those are the folks who are paid millions to hide trillions. Mm -hmm. The lawyers, the estate planners, the accountants who basically work overtime to help the super rich game the tax code down. So that Mm-hmm. That is clearly happening in our society and, and actually, again, accelerating in my observation. Right. So obviously, this all this is just damn, just plain wrong. I mean, morally reprehensible stuff. On some level, you can also say it's understandable from a... It's understandable, like, for example, that people want to make sure that their kids can benefit or whatever, you know. But I think what's interesting for us, like on this podcast, to Explore, is just... What is the implication of all of this on our abilities as society to get through stuff? One is to avoid maybe these cycles of collapse that are that are brought about by inequality. But the other is how do we deal with it as we're coming into time where we're dealing with r- real resource constraints and climate change and other issues? And and I'd love to hear your thoughts about like what listeners can do either individually or collectively around these things because it seems like we really need to tamp down, right, on these, reverse these trends, reverse the influence of, of elites and the overproduction of elites. So, yeah, what are your thoughts around in, in any of these three areas, the things that we can be doing? Well, in some ways, it's continuing the discussions about inequality. Things have really shifted in, in 10 years. You know, the U.S. is particularly has a very high tolerance for inequality. When people feel that the rules are fair and everybody has a shot to become rich. We kind of all buy into this social mobility. But clearly, these trends that we're talking about, people are waking up. The whole idea that the economy is rigged to benefit the super rich, that there is a sort of populist groundswell. Policies like Senator Elizabeth Warren's proposal to levy a wealth tax on people with 50 million or more, that is a wildly popular idea. So I'm actually starting to think we have a shot at a whole bunch of policies that could reduce this concentration of wealth, begin to sort of turn the corner, enforcing existing laws, shutting down some of these tax loopholes, working cross borders to prevent corporations and rich people from playing countries off against each other. You know, the rest of the world is interested in shutting down this hidden wealth system as well. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I see are cracks in the system. I see wealthy people who are saying, hey, look, it's not in my interest to think so narrowly about my self-interest. They're going to their wealth defense industry people and saying, you know, I hear you're you're trying to build up a dynasty of wealth for my great unborn great-grandchildren, and I want to move my money now to invest in a livable planet, fund campaigns, fund organizing to address climate catastrophe, and you're, you're locking me in to this long-term ridiculous scenario. And even people within the wealth defense industry who are like, whoa, I'm giving my whole life power, all my life energy to a system that's bringing us to the brink. So even the supposed beneficiaries now mm-hmm. are seeing the irrationality of the system. So I think there's a there's a potential to crack it, not, you know, and 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 help maybe avert some of the absolute worst potential outcomes where the rich are just holding on, building missile silos, you know, building mountain redorts, you know, investing in 
security forces, you know, the sort of the, the worst aspects of what we're describing here could be averted by bold policies to reverse inequality and cracks within the elites themselves. A lot of this seems like it comes down to political engagement. And we've got representatives in Congress and typically people that, that wind up in the White House that are part of an elite class, whether they're part of the 1% or you know one-tenth of 1%, they're maybe part of that 10% that you were talking about, people with elite education and such. So, so it seems like we have to maybe, one, elect people who actually understand what the material conditions are like for the majority of Americans. And two, yeah. have to really uh, petition and basically challenge them to to enact policies in the right direction, or even, as you said, ensure that we're actually funding the IRS to do its job and those kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, I think in addition to just having elite people who are currently in Congress, you know, I think that the political system has obviously been captured by big money. And big capture doesn't mean the rich always get their way, but it means they are in a position to block a lot of the needed changes and reforms. I mean, obviously we see this with the fossil fuel industry. They, they, their goal over the last couple of decades has just been able to effectively stymie and block the kind of transformations that we need to do. Similar with the super wealthy elite, they invest in gridlock. And that's where we as individuals and individual voters and, and, and politically engaged people can say, look, are you working for that one-tenth of one percent. It's not even the one percent. It's like, are you with the 99.9 percent? Are you, or are you right. with the super uber rich, the yeah. billionaire class? And I actually think it's useful to talk about the billionaire class who have seen their wealth surge during the pandemic and kind of build that populist framework, that narrative mm-hmm. that this is really undermining the quality of life for everybody. Yeah. And I also think it's interesting, you know, talking about the risks of these these sins and what they lead to, especially looking at historical examples, which is what Turchin has done, how that often leads to political upheaval and violence and even collapse of of societies. On the one hand, that could lead these these elites to to run for their bunkers. On the other hand, maybe it helps people understand that it's in people's self interest to regulate some of this stuff. My my last question for you, Chuck, is just: Is there anything you'd say? You know, a lot of our listeners, I include myself in this, are part of an elite population of people. And just in the sense that maybe we're highly educated, we're privileged to have some some measure of, of economic comfort. What can we do to check our own eliteness, I guess you could say? Yeah. It, you know, in th- some ways, I think it's very important to start with the stories we tell ourselves about our own circumstances, Mm -hmm. because there is such a powerful dominant cultural mythology. I call it the myth of deservedness. You know, everyone is where they deserve to be. And if you kind of look at the world through that lens, you say, well, I'm here because I worked hard and I applied myself and kind of the meritocratic story. I'm here because I worked hard. And those other people over there are in that disadvantaged circumstance because, you know, they didn't work as hard or they didn't apply their skills and intelligence or they made bad decisions. You know, I think it's so important to take those narratives and, and disrupt them really look at the ways in which how advantage works, how multiple generational advantage works Hmm. as well as disadvantage. Don't continue to use these stories about individual solutions and individual success narratives. You You hear people say, you know, if only people, you know, grit, or even we hear the word resilience. If people had more resilience and grit, or if they had better financial literacy tools, or if they had the ability to save money and postpone gratification, and or maybe if that billionaire over there funded more scholarships to help those promising individuals. And you just, that individual narrative hmm. versus understanding that these are multi-generational systemic structural inequalities that individuals benefit from these systems of advantage. And I, and I think then the other part is just to commit ourselves to policies that raise the floor and that create real opportunity for people, you know, do what some of the Nordic countries do, have a real social safety net, have access to healthcare, have access to lifelong learning without going into debt, things that actually help non-rich people have good lives mm-hmm. uh, and have the same opportunities that 
the rich have in this society. So demythologizing and then standing up for policies that broaden opportunity and address extreme inequality and poverty. Well said. Let's hope that this is a moment, as you said, there are cracks in the system. Unfortunately, these are moments born out of a lot of pain. But I think we at PCI have long talked about the fact that crises, and we're going to have lots of them create opportunities. So hopefully this is an opportunity to address that. I think the pandemic is is a great wake-up call and opportunity that it's a shared experience that we've all had and is the basis upon which to push this program for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Chuck. And I want to encourage folks to check out Chuck's work at inequality.org and, uh, and check out his latest book, The Wealth Hoarders. Thanks so much, Chuck. Thanks, Asher. That's our show. Thanks for joining us in Crazy Town. This is a program of Post Carbon Institute. Get more info at postcarbon.org. All right, we got a really good sponsor for today's program, um, and they're going to offer a discount for anyone who was able to listen to our show and get through it and all the bullshit we had in there. Um, that's, that better be a that's a, that's a nice discount. I mean, anybody who makes it through that. Well, what's ironic is that it's called Delete, and it's about deprogramming the elites who have a shit ton of money. Oh you know? yeah, yeah, you. You were going to go to Harvard. You, you thought you were going to be on the fast track after your Ivy League education. But really, you're just, you're an, just asshole. an asshole. Yeah, yeah. So that's the problem with all this is you think that, that you know, spending a lot of money on something like makes, means it was worthwhile. And no, no, you're no. just an asshole. <laughs> right. So delete what they do is they, uh, over the course of what, I think it's like 12 weeks, right? Yeah. They, they basically break you down yeah right anytime you say something stupid or elitist they they slap you yeah it hurts it hurts and i mean it's a real negative reinforcement right but eventually by the time you're you're out of the program you're you're an actual normal human being oh and then apparently the people that have come out of this are just super nice and and down to earth and fun to be around don't don't raise your hand very quickly around i made it through the episode and i i use my discount to sign the two of you up oh no (laughs) this is gonna hurt man Crazy town, da 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 da, crazy town.